Hi, I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to comedian Maria Bamford. I had OCD for many years, and when I finally got help for it and then was able to express it and what it was like, but in a comedic way and to get laughs for it, and then to have the added experience of people saying, oh my God, thank you so much for talking about that because this has paralyzed me for years. You know, that's, that's awesome. Maria Bamford employs surrealist comedy to her sets, often building a complicated web of characters through voice work and storytelling. She'll jump from joke to joke in a way that subverts our traditional expectations around segues and transitions. Yeah, there's a controlled chaos to her work that shows a true mastery of the form. She's also unafraid to explore difficult subjects. Maria's very open about her own struggles with mental illness and incorporates the topic into much of her work, including projects like 2009's Unwanted Thought Syndrome, 2012's The Special Special Special, 2017's Maria Bamford Old Baby, and on her own original comedy series, Lady Dynamite. She's worked hard to shed more light on the subject of mental health. In her new web series, What's Your Ailment?, Maria conducts interviews with fellow performers about their own history with mental health struggles. Maria is not just a passionate advocate for these issues, but a tireless performer. She also just released her new stand-up special, Weakness is the Brand. Joe recently sat down with Maria to talk about these projects and more. Hi, Maria. Hi, Joe. Thank you for having me uh, talk. <laughs> um, How's your day going so far? It's going great. Uh, I had a, a massive cold brew, and so, <laughs> you know, I'm in the eighth dimension now. Me too. I had three coffees, and so I'm a little bit, you know, amped and ready. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I just finished watching the new special that you have, Weakness is the Brand. Could you Could you unpack that title a little bit? Well... I have a fear that I'm no longer useful in society. And so my hope is that uh, perhaps my worst fear is my greatest gift, as they are always saying in Oprah Winfrey's magazine, <laughs> um, that perhaps uh, <laughs> this this is the thing that's really going to make me, <laughs> is getting older and uh, <laughs> slowly falling apart. Um, but yeah, so weakness, uh, I have a bit of a tremor with, uh, some medications that I'm on. Depakote, currently 500 milligrams, went down a little bit, and, uh, 25 milligrams of Seroquel, though that's not a tremor medication, and then, uh, 40 milligrams of Prozac. I think everyone can relate, public radio audience. (laughs) Hope everybody's on something or just getting off of something, whatever is working for you. Well, you do talk about how important full disclosure and open book accounting is for you and, you know, right off the bat. Uh, So you you joke in the special about how mediocrity can be kind of the best thing in the world. Yes. Uh, Is there a noble truth in that idea? I think so because I I mean, I'm amazed that anybody continues to show up uh, to everything uh, in the exquisite pain of showing up and knowing one is not that great, I think is uh, brave. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. At least that's what I'm trying to tell myself. This is all uh, a selfish pep talk. Uh, (laughs) I I do try to enjoy everything, even if perhaps it's not uh, something that some might consider up to par. Uh, Because otherwise the standards get so high, you can't enjoy things anymore. Uh, in terms of, you know, watching 
TV and saying what kind of food we're supposed to eat and where you're supposed to live and what your face is supposed to look like. Like, uh, I got to lower the bar. Yeah, it, that it's okay to be uh, not good, just as I'm being right now, sort of wishy-washy in my answers. I didn't rehearse this. Well, you I love can that. tell. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a certain authenticity to that that I think people appreciate, um, and the podcasting form is especially good for. I, t- I I do feel terrible how I'm not a an in the moment thinker. Like I'm not. Um, I did parliamentary debate in college, and I remember just standing in awe of people who could just articulate very complicated ideas uh, quickly. And uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, that, that is not my gift. My gift is to rehearse things uh, strenuously for hours in advance and then to present. Uh, so at conversations, I, I don't look I don't look like a, a genius, unfortunately. I mean, not that I look like a genius when I'm <laughs> performing, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So, so did you? Is that what is that what initially drew you to stand up in particular as a comedian? You think is is being able to have a format where you know you can you can really rehearse it and prepare ahead of time? Yes, it's the uh, false sense of control. The idea that I have a bunch of things planned if anyone interrupts me. Uh, no, of course, that's not at all true. Like, there is no control. Uh, I learned that over and over again. Uh, there was a, a drunk man in a front row recently who taught me again the practice of mindfulness and that, you know, sometimes you just you just wonder, where do I feel it in my body uh, where this guy is talking during my act, uh, <laughs> that um, I can't stop it. I've tried three times, and uh, <laughs> he is he is still talking. Uh, so, oh well, I, I want to get better at what I do, and p- part of that is something that I'm not very good at, which is connecting with other human beings. <laughs> I'm not very good at it, uh, but that's the reason I got into stand-up is because it was a way to very safely connect with other human beings. Uh, well, you talk about this idea of confidence um, in your special, and I think, you know, it's interesting that you kind of—it feels like your work sometimes is, is attacking the idea of confidence and what that that means in American culture and why we value it so much as a culture. What do you think is troubling or, or dangerous about the pressure that we put on people to be at their most confident? I mean, the term con man comes from confidence man. Gosh, that's a really— interesting thing to know. Uh, yeah, confidence, I, I never have uh, trusted it, partially because I just don't relate. I don't have a brain that thinks that everything's going to be okay and uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to do a great job. Like I just, <laughs> for some reason, that isn't my natural state. I have uh, friends, family who who do have a more natural state of like, oh, this, yeah, of course, I'm just going to have a, a great day today and uh, people are for the most part going to like me and I'm I'm good. I'm good at what I do. And um, but I think it could be partly Midwestern culture of like you, Minnesota, of like not wanting to be, uh, you never say that you're good at something. You say, well, I'm Pretty good at it. I mean, I guess my my dad is very much my example for uh, self esteem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I don't know if I, 
Oh, he's a pretty good doctor. I mean, <clears throat> we'll see <laughs> what they say 50 years from now. Uh, I don't think they'll remember. That's the thing. Uh, but so I I guess it also, if, if you're confident, there is this uh, idea that if you are wrong, you might be less likely to admit that because uh, you, went, you went in so hot <laughs> on your first idea. And also, good is so subjective. Uh, good, uh, for one person, could mean very bad for another person in, you know, not just in the, mm. in the arts, <laughs> but in so many different circumstances in life. And, um, yeah, yeah that I think that currently worries me about our uh, government to a great extent of the... The vague greatness of everything is uh, terrifying. Do you think there's a better way forward past this kind of overconfidence? It seems like that that's what most people like. Mm. People feel excited about someone who looks like they know what they're doing, even if there's no evidence of that. Uh, if you do the acting job of acting like you know what you're doing, that, that that's more important than the actual job. I, I know I've been I've been sold on um, somebody's swagger or salesmanship before um, the actual content of of what they're providing me, and that, and I, I think I see that in myself too. Like I I get my own version of of confidence and saying things that I have no business saying or, you know, so, so I do like, I love that about the internet where you'll get called out because um, I'm a dinosaur sinking into the tar of irrelevant redundancy. And so <laughs> I'm so grateful <laughs> that anyone will take time out of their uh, very short day to tell me to learn something new. Um, <laughs> that's the purpose of Twitter is to learn. It's a big, big educational seminar. Well, how did you know that comedy was going to be a a career that that you could have some confidence in, that you knew you had some ability in? Well, I don't know if I feel – I mean, (laughs) to this day, I just got this Facebook message uh, from a friend from high school said, Hey, I always thought your sister was funnier than you were. Hmm. Now is now the time. <laughs> is it, you're gonna go all in on that now. All right, uh, all right, Rajiv Das. Um, <laughs> but uh, turns out I'm still sensitive. Wow, uh, that's that's never going away. But uh, sadly enough, but. Um, Oh gosh! Now I've forgotten the question. Um, I'm too high on cold brew. I was just I'm I'm kind of curious about when you you know when you first realized in your life that that comedy was going to be a career for you. Oh, I enjoyed the feeling of being on stage. I was put through this Suzuki violin program when I was three years old and stayed there. Till, but I I didn't like playing the violin, but I loved being on stage. I love attention for some reason is a very calming space for me. And um, I always liked doing speeches when there was an opportunity to do one. I ran for office uh, every year of high school. I did not win all the time, but I did get to do the speech, and that's all you want. (laughs) And so I didn't... I didn't think of stand-up as a possibility until there was an open mic uh, in college. And I thought, oh, that... 
I would like to do that. And I, I don't think I called it comedy at the time because of external pressure that somehow someone would <laughs> tell me that what I was doing wasn't comedy, which still happens. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Internet. <laughs> and uh, let me know how you feel. Uh, I am I am curious. Um, so there's always a constant um, not knowing of, of whether it's I'm just starting work on a new hour of material now. And uh, I all of a sudden feel this uh, dread and concern of, oh, no. How do I do it? How do I how did how did I do it last time? <laughs> and um, so, I think there's always that beginning feeling. But yeah, I di- I didn't necessarily know that it was going to work out. But it seemed like I, I have a friend of mine twenty years ago recommended me read The Artist's Way. So I just thought, well, I'll just start saying I'm a comedian, and uh, which is actually one of the most powerful things you can stay just call whatever you're doing stand up comedy and uh and maybe maybe it is <laughs> and um, I was a secretary for ten years though, so uh I obviously didn't do stand up full time uh for a very long time and uh and so i didn't didn't know uh it would become a, a full time thing uh I am extremely grateful that as for today, it is still. Still a full-time thing, though I do need to sell some seats in Indianapolis, I've heard. Uh, so, <laughs> it, you know, it's a constant. There's a constant um, not knowing. I'm curious about when you kind of – how you evolved your, your approach to comedy and your style of comedy. You know, I love being able to talk with artists who who are kind of reaching the outer bounds of their disciplines. And, and I think your style of comedy is obviously very unique – and I'm curious how one develops that kind of style. I'm not sure, just because I'm inside myself, and I don't, I don't always see anything that I do as unique. Like in some ways, I I worry that I'm a bit hack, mm. uh, and that I, I do, um, you know, a limited amount of voices, and also reliance on different characters uh, instead of the writing to do punchlines. <laughs> These are the critiques I have of my own work. Um, so my own voice does not command respect. So I, I think I decided to do uh, different voices to gather attention, but also an enjoyment of it. Um, like to lose myself in, in different ideas, such as the confident person, someone who is just, you just, who knows, you know, from, you know, I just don't really understand when people say, oh, I'm anxious, you know, I mean, I've heard it described. Um, And the crazy thing for me is I have to be vulnerable and say, I've never experienced anxiety and get the reactions about that. You know, there's a lot of judgment. That comes my way. Which can be true. You know, it can be true that people are judgmental the other way around. Um, but, I, yeah, just enjoying doing um, different characters. And, uh, yeah, it's, so it, to me, it does. It, my style doesn't seem like a style. Like, it seems like, oh, this is, this is, my, this is what I'm doing. Uh-huh. And... Uh, yeah, I know I don't have like set up punch, set up punch, set up punch, you know, one liners. But uh, as far as being an outlier, I 
I've heard that, but I have not always felt it. Mm. So <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So did you have influences when you were growing up that you point to and say, "Oh, you know, I love the way this comic works." Well, I love like I love my dad. I love uh, my mom. I think they're hilarious. My sister is hilarious, though she has asked me to stop doing impersonations of her. So that <laughs> that material's gone. It's got to be burned. And um, and I, di- I did listen to a lot of Steve Martin and um, Eddie Murphy when I was a kid and watched SNL. I love SNL. I still love it. Watch it uh, all, the t- all the time uh, as soon as it, as it comes out. And, yeah, and I'm still very much influenced by – there's just such a beautiful array of perspectives in stand-up now. I, I know it's mostly in – it's just in the bigger cities. Um but I did a study with a University of Chicago professor of uh, the representation in comedy clubs and just in clubs, not in festivals, but in clubs. And it is still, I believe the number was 87 percent white male in comedy clubs across the U.S. And then the percentages get uh, progressively worse if you are of color or a woman of color. Uh, it is dire. But that said, in the bigger cities and in the festivals, there's just an incredible – and that is extremely inspiring to see all these different perspectives and um, and different styles. And dancing can be an element of uh, stand-up. Like I, I watched Ileana Glazer's uh, special uh, yesterday and, yeah, it's it's just wonderful. We've been talking to a lot of different artists this season on our podcast who are kind of directly working personal material from their life into their art. We talked to Chris Gethard, who did that mm. with Career Suicide, and I just talked to Noah Baumbach, who did that with Marriage Story and a lot of his films. And it's always really interesting to me that people allow their, their work to be so vulnerable and, and open in that way. And in particular with you, I first came across your work with the special, 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 <laughs> and... This felt <laughs> particularly along those lines. And so I guess I was curious, you know, what led to this idea for you to perform for just your parents as a special? And- well, I wasn't feeling well. I had been hospitalized a few times for uh, bipolar 2 and um, was on some heavy medication. And so I thought, I got to do this hour. What's the easiest way I can do it? Uh maybe a few feet from my bed uh, and only get my parents to watch because uh, my parents are very supportive. I knew that they would laugh no matter what, uh, even though my dad has a hearing problem. And um, he might even turn down his his hearing aid. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I love you, but I, I just don't. <laughs> I don't get it. Um, that's, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and it just seemed like... Uh, it was really sort of a either a laziness or a an ease of doing. I just thought, what what can I do with what I have? Which is, I, I just didn't feel up to doing one of those, uh, you know, big show with big crowds and it's all hyped up. And uh, and I did also think, you know, who do I really want to love me and think that I'm the greatest? Two people. My mom and dad. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's really who I've been doing it for. And um, 
And I did pay them, just so you know. They all, both got 600 bucks a piece, which is oh, good. Mm, close <laughs> to union scale, but not not quite. And uh, But they did get some beer and pizza and cookies. And so I get to be a part of the magic. And I think that's, you know, there's really no price to put on that. But, uh, yeah, so that, that, that's how I decided to do it. And, uh, yeah, it was so so wonderful. It was really a... I, I do like performing in that way. It, it, one person is enough, especially if they're a good laugher. Oh, my God. So <laughs> wonderful. Well, you've talked really openly in your career about mental health. And when did you first decide to incorporate this into your work? And, and why, do you think, why do you think mental health is such a, a boundary or taboo for a lot of people in this country? I don't know. It seems so much less than it was. And I know there are many pioneers of talking about mental health. Uh, Jonathan Winters, I know, in the 60s, talked about it as a comedian on on stage and, um, uh, yeah, many others. And uh, so I, I, it seems like it's, at least in the younger generation, it's a lot less uh, taboo, though, but it's still... It, it still happens. It, when it, it's most surprising to me is when it's a medical professional or someone who is in uh, the mental health industry uh, who has uh, – I, I had a interview uh, for a show with this, uh, a psychologist, and um, he – I was asking him about his work with his clients, and I said, you know uh, – he said, "Well, I I usually try try to work with people off their meds so they can really do the real work." And I was like, "Say what? Like <laughs> you call me a <laughs> like uh yeah that I can't uh, it, so it can come from anywhere. Just sort of like the interesting um uh, yeah that somehow if you're taking medication or that if you have any uh." uh any symptoms of that it is so surprising me that that is still an issue in society or or that schizophrenia to that 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 is still openly a, a joke for me and this is only for me that is it's not super funny just because it's not super educated like you're taking something down that's already down but it's all I've had to talk about for certain parts of my life. And so – and also once I think you get help for something, uh, whether it's any sort of situation, um, anything you feel like you've learned from that you were alone with for a long time, I think everybody has the human uh, desire to share it with others on some level because you go, oh, I just went through this thing. Uh I'm going to tell you about it. So if it ever happens to you, you don't feel uh, like you're by yourself, which I find comedians are very good at, you know, saying, well, guess what? I, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I adore that that is expanding in terms of I, I think I saw a comedian at Montreal uh, the other year who said, um, I'm a registered sex offender was his first line. Uh just to let you know, the only thing worse than a registered sex offender is an unregistered sex offender. At least you know where my hands are at. I'm up here, up here. And, and like, how wonderful that that is, because um, that's a very taboo subject. And I think also that um, 
when things become taboo, they aren't available for healing or changing at all, mm-hmm. at all. They aren't, you know, there's no uh, possibility of change or the beautiful love of humanity that can that can come in and sometimes uh, help or change. You know, obviously sometimes it doesn't change people at all, but I, I've actually, I'm a little bit worried that the arts can't change anything in society. So I've offered to help people if they... If you bring your glasses to a show, I will have a warm bowl of water with some white vinegar in it, and I'll clean your glasses for you after the show because comedy is not enough. It is not enough. <laughs> do, do you hope that comedy can be a vehicle for change within people? Yeah. I mean, if only—I mean, even if it's only just for me to have more self-acceptance, mm. I guess, I, I guess that's— the original thing is, like, uh, I felt so relieved. I, I had OCD, this sort of unwanted thoughts, uh, OCD, for many years. And when I finally got help for it and then was able to express it and what it was like, but in a comedic way and to get laughs for it, that was such a wonderful feeling. And then to have the added experience of people saying, oh, my God, thank you so much for talking about that because— this has paralyzed me for years, uh, you know, a similar experience, you know, that's that's awesome, you know. I mean, but it's no different than somebody saying, you know, <laughs> a, a story about uh, my wife does that too or I don't know. That's a, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, comedic premises that involve uh, more heteronormative uh, experiences like my wife spends all my money. That's I've, I've heard that premise many times before. Really? She spent all your money. Uh, are you letting her work? All right. Uh, <laughs> if you don't like your wife so much, there's other things you can do uh, besides talk about her on stage. Uh, <laughs> anyways, that's these are all uh, sideline issues I have with comedic premises. Uh, well, people also have this fear that that you know if they if they fix themselves or they try to you know address a lot of their their issues, they might not be funny anymore. They might not be good at their careers anymore. I hear that, and then I also think, you know, if I end up having to get another job because I feel better, uh, that's okay. <laughs> I'd rather get another job. I'm 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 good. Uh, if um, if I'm not as good as at this job because I'm not miserable, then uh, I'm all I'm all for moving on to whatever the next thing is. And I am um, taking an accounting class online through my local community college. Yes, I'm a few behind. A few, I'm a few assignments behind, but um, I'm, I'm, there's no reason I can't finish. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have advice for young people that are trying to balance their their mental health issues with with their careers? Go get yourself that super crap ass free help. Uh, if you don't have any uh, cash, uh, do whatever you can. I've called the operator. Uh, you can dial zero, and sometimes you'll get someone. Um, like mental health services are notoriously terrible um it's awesome if you can find somebody but you can't always find somebody and or sometimes you find somebody but they're not that great um i have a psychiatrist 
nah, I don't know. Is she? She's close. She takes insurance. Uh, she's not drunk. Uh, those are my <laughs> requirements. Like, just uh, in a, yeah, take care of yourself uh, uh, as best you can, and know that you're not alone, and and uh, hopefully uh, you can have some some laughs along the way. Uh, but know that it is hard. It is it is not easy at all. Like uh, I have, I think the best possible scenario. I am, uh, I think, definitively rich. Um, I live in Los Angeles, a very uh, groovy area where people are fairly welcoming and uh, in the creative industry about mental health issues. So I had the best of all possible worlds. And and I still still get a hairy eyeball every once in a while, so I cannot imagine what it's like when you you know there is no insurance in there. And, and I mean, I have I have been in that situation where you got to go to county hospital and you got to wait five hours to get your meds filled, if if not eleven. And um, yeah, it 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 blows. Um, so uh, just get whatever resources you can. There's uh, stuff online, but sometimes I Google stuff in my zip code. If I Google whatever my my issue is in my zip code, um, that that uh, you can find some uh, free stuff. But everything for free. I go to um, open AA meetings sometimes because I'm uh, I'm not an alcoholic, but I I like to sit and see people's faces mm-hmm. and maybe have a piece of cake. Uh, sometimes they have cake. Some coffee, maybe. Uh, and they let you they, they let you sit there and some coffee, and it's good for your cognitive behavioral health uh, to sit and look at other human faces and hear about their experiences. So that's free. Why not? That might that might be good. And they can't tell you to leave. That's the other great thing about that twelve step cult is that uh, <laughs> it's in their thing that they got to welcome everybody. Even if you bring a bottle of Jack Daniels, they'll tell you to sit in the back. Uh, you're you're everybody's welcome. So. Yeah, just get whatever ass help you can. Even bad help's worth it. Better than no help, right? Oh, my God. Bad help is sometimes underrated because sometimes you're so angry or it's so hilarious, the bad help, that you kind of are cheered up. Um, I went to um, a free therapist. I believe she was just getting her master's. And she was so horrified by my situation. What are you going to do? So are you going to... I mean, you don't have a place to live. Are you going to live? You're going to live in your car. I was like, by the end, I was like, I'm going to be fine. Like, <laughs> I'm worried about you now. <laughs> Do you want to take my number? Because, man, there's some breathing exercises I could teach you. Holy <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> There's a, there is something wonderful about ter- terrible help. <laughs> <laughs> well, this reminds me of your new – you have a new show uh, on Topic.com called What's Your Ailment? Yes. Um, and, you know, this is interesting because it's it's kind of a talk show, right? And mm-hmm. and what's it like for you to kind of wear the hat as an interviewer? I, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing, so uh, <laughs> I hope I'm, I'm a good listener uh, and that – I'm excited to hear uh, what's going to come out of the interviewee's uh, little mouth. And, yeah, it has been very uh, 
interesting just to uh, hear the experience of others. Um, you know, and some people who I, I've known, like a Jen Kirkman, who was a fellow comedian. But some things I hadn't I hadn't known about uh, her life and experience, and that was really fun. And uh, it was also fun to see her. Uh, and she's hilarious. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was – well, and that is a form of terrible, uh, very inexpensive help that you can get. You can watch watch a show about mental health <laughs> interviews uh, online. It's two ninety nine, but, I mean, were you doing anything? I mean, if you were going to – if you're going to do something else instead, maybe, maybe just try this out. It's a, it's very. Anyways, I, I, I hope it is helpful to people to hear. Uh, I believe the f- first one we did is, is Tom Arnold, and and he's been a very open person talking about all of his experiences and, uh, you know, in real time. Like he, uh, you know, I, I believe during the interview talks about uh, his experience of. Getting a divorce and being a parent, and um, and then uh, trying to stay clean, um, and while also having mental health issues. So, yeah, I appreciate that that people are willing to. Uh, uh, my one of my favorite interviews was Ellen Sachs, who's um, she's a law professor who works at USC, who has the I, I believe it is a oh gosh I'm not going to say this right she she wrote a book a memoir called The Center Cannot Hold about having schizophrenia and going through uh, I believe a doctorate program and having and just all the experiences she's had and continues to have um, working at at USC just sort of there's just I believe she's the one person who is a professional and out with having schizophrenia. Um, I, I could be wrong about that, but uh, I believe she is one of the only uh, professionals. Um, I, I, know, I know there are other people who experience schizophrenia, but I think because of the the uh, yet negative tabooness of it, that part of the symptoms are that you can have psychosis, or and that there are varying degrees of that. Uh, really stop people from talking about it at all, which is which is too bad. Like it's. It's. It just seems like we should, like any disability, we should make everything accessible to all. Um, yeah, I know there's some comedians who are talking about having schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, and I, uh, no one yet that I've seen do a, a long special about it. But I can't wait. I'm, I know it's coming, uh, which will be wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this is really the, the thesis for your show, and. A lot of your comedy is just trying to engage people in a dialogue about these things. Yeah, yeah, because it it is, uh, I, I, and I, I, engaging in a dialogue with somebody who's a bit of an introvert, so I might not respond as well. <laughs> like I'm a bit, I can't keep the conversation going, but if you guys, I'll be over here looking at a book. Uh, you guys keep talking about it though. <laughs> well, that's a lot of that's a lot of you know valuable therapy is just like that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm I'm not very good on panels. I I was on one TV show as a panel, and I ended up not saying anything for the whole hour. And I st- I felt good about it. I still felt good about it. I felt like I participated. I was there. I like to bring something up and then go away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so there's a there's a questionnaire that I found that you had published, the Maria Bamford questionnaire, oh. and so. 
you know, I thought an interesting thing to sort of wrap things up on might be to ask you a few of the questions that you wrote for this questionnaire. Oh, that's what I don't even remember this. <laughs> this is a piece in Vulture. Oh, okay, hilarious. Okay, right, right. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. So yes. one, what's your most repetitive long-term fear? Oh, God. This is so embarrassing, but it's a fear of um, gaining weight, which it's from, it's from the, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I'm so sorry. It is embarrassing. I I know it's, it's so dumb at this point, uh, but uh, that is truly somehow, um, yeah. Oh, it's so, oh, so boring. Apologies all around. Two. Describe something that's not <laughs> funny to you. Describe <laughs> that's not funny to me. Um, well, I guess physical violence against another human being in um, that hurts. You know, I don't mind being bonked in the head with a volleyball for comedic purposes, but um, if it hurts, I don't know. Although I've done some pratfalls, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, violence is a bummer. That's good. For me. For me. I know Jackass has done wonders (laughs) (laughs) for people's, uh, uh, my husband enjoys that that program. Number three, could you describe something that is funny to you? Well, this is just a new premise I've been working on, how— I love kids' books, and I think it's because you never hear the backstory of the cat who's the baker. Like, it's a cat, <laughs> and he's a baker. And you never—you don't question it. You don't go, oh, is he any good at that? <laughs> like, you just see him holding a warm bun, and you're like, oh, that's awesome. Like, you don't think, oh, it's actually it was an inherited business. He never really wanted to get into it. He's— Really, he's a, he's more of a circus guy. He loves doing pole work, and you know, actually, the quality <laughs> of some of the baking has gone down, and and that's too bad, you know. But also, you feel for him. You feel for him. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> but it's just a cat with a bun <laughs> and an apron. Uh, <laughs> Okay, final question from the the Maria Bamford questionnaire that I'll ask is, what's the best thing that you've learned from somebody who you don't like? Oh, my God. Okay. Well, that it's okay to sit in the discomfort, in the full reality that someone really dislikes me, so much that they might actually try to physically lunge at me because they're drunk— and it's and that it's okay for me to still like myself in that same moment as they don't like you know like those two things can exist in the same realm and that I can take a beat I can take a second that I don't have to rush you know rush to some response to this person and I can breathe in and I don't think I would have learned this without this um, young man in the front row. I wouldn't have been able to take the second to say, hey, um, I know this seems familiar uh, because you've probably been in a relationship with someone like me. And don't worry, I'm going to change you with my love. Um, 
so I came up with some some. <laughs> If, if if you're an abusive alcoholic, which it seems like you are, um, I think I can change you with my love. Otherwise, if you're just a nice person, I'm not interested. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that I just t- t- trying to that that's something about myself that I I find it intolerable for someone not to like or respect me, and it's like, well, but that's okay. I mean, that's the whole thing is you got to be able to tolerate. Uh, the stinging broth of intimacy. Um, so that that's what was taught to me, I think. I'm mm. not sure if that's a lesson. That's a great it answer. Felt like a lesson. <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, thanks so much for talking. I really appreciate it. Yes. No, thank you so much, Joe. Thank you very much for having me. I hope I made any sort of sense. No, this was great. I loved it. Oh, great. Great. Thank God. <laughs> a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. really appreciate it. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.